Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! Podcast Guys takes a long view and a long price. Spoilers will be commonplace. Listen at your own risk. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate speaker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of a practical guide to evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as Is Catherine safe among such dangerous villains? How would an ideal imperial tax policy be structured? Is Black out to stab people? <laughs> Not for at least another chapter. Ha-ha! <laughs> I see I'll have to take drastic measures to ensure intelligent conversation around here. Red Empress Maledicta II, before having the tongues of the entire Imperial Court ripped out. Honestly, before we dig into the meat here, I have to say, what an icon. Before we dig into the meat here, I have to say, apropos of nothing, do not look up lingualectomy on DuckDuckGo unless you're really prepared to rapidly shield your eyes. I appreciate the warning. If you are wondering what I was doing earlier today. (laughs) I do enjoy how we begin here with more of Cat really underestimating mainly scribe i think she spends a bit of time worrying about how they got her clothing size give her a couple of years and i think her first thought would be scribe did it before she wondered if maybe more mundane methods were involved that comes up a couple of times in the next couple of chapters wondering how much information they have on her and it's just she's so naive right now and it's so adorable Later, Catherine would in fact put mundane means as third or fourth on the list. First is scribe or something similar. Second is just magically or hyper-mundanely enhanced perception. Someone looked at her and said, this is what we'll need. I'll get it for her by tomorrow. And then after that is probably a betrayal by Hakram or Archer or Viv. I would caution you on the word betrayal there, and then I realized, no, that is exactly what her word would be. Uh, Of course. Maybe treachery. Treachery at the hands of a wench. (laughs) The classic. Keeping with clothing here, the next next bit here is Kat wondering to herself if Black's armor is enchanted, and knowing uh, what she learns pretty soon here regarding magical arms and armor. It's 
amusing that she's got that mindset, which in fairness, if I were living in a fantasy world, I would assume the villain of the story has magic armor. You know, that's just a base level assumption in this kind of thing. And it's, you know, we were speaking about how Kat's second option might be assuming a mundane answer. Kat and, you know, partially thanks to Black, they really do like their simple mundane things because of how reliable they are. And at this point, Kat doesn't know that, which is kind of a an interesting reversal i suppose that she is concerned about this one thing that the clothing or what have you or the nor or the spies but then just assumes oh yeah and his his armor is super magical which is a setup for multiple things first of all this is a foretaste of the setup for the reveal that hey magical armor creates a reliance it's not reliable which is itself a setup for i think the early book two where uh is it a shining prince? It's hoisted by his own petard and headshot. I believe neck shot, but the next part of the head. <laughs> My apologies. I'm really not an anatomist. But in addition to that, it's a setup for Kat's understanding of what it means to create an artifact as opposed to relying on tricks. She at the end of the day, at the end of the story, Kat, in all of what happened with her legend being arguably the greatest of the age, or at the very least one of the greatest of the age, mm. she has maybe two real artifacts, a staff and a cape. But here, she doesn't know that yet. She looks at Black's armor and not only assumes it would be a petty trick, uh, but also it could have been enchanted, of course probably was, but it wasn't the dark obsidian or whatnot you'd have expected a man in his position to wear. His belt buckle didn't even have a skull on it. And this is an introduction not yet explained to her, not yet pieced out by her, to the delicate interplay between the maintenance of a legend, of a role in the story, and not being a storybook villain, but rather wielding the story, sure, but not becoming subject to it, which is death for any villain. Right. There's a difference between complying with archetype out of... I mean, it's sort of mentioned soon. Complying with archetype or, or fate out of cowardice or laziness or what have you versus setting up that sort of thing. I mean, the to jump way forward again, Kat's artifacts that she carries around, the not the um, big story-based ones that she orders to be made but the the ones that she carries with her she comes by those pretty honestly they're they are attached to her mythos they're not tools that she said hey i need somebody to make this for me you know they're they're part of her more than anything they're an extension of her power more than anything they are a result of her story rather than the opposite at this point she just assumes anything the black knight has must be something like that even though have you ever heard about the black knight's armor before today Pretty soon after this, Kat is trying to pick up on social cues, on, on tells from Black, and mentions that her tutors, I believe, talked about a regrettable lack of awareness and a natural predisposition for insolence in a younger cat. And, you know, she goes on to talk about how she's very bad at the social stuff and doesn't pick up on things. And I really, really enjoy that that's where she is right now, where she's concerned about that rather than making that basically a strength when she rewrites how social hierarchies work around her once you're once you're powerful enough and influential enough ignoring the subtleties of high politics or whatever is 
a very powerful tool that and most of that i think is intentional for cat but i do think there's a level where she just can't be bothered and it takes a level of power to reach that ability and it's it's great that that she doesn't really learn she she picks up on lies she picks up on uh on people a little better she learns to read people a little better but the subtleties are mostly scheming on her part and out planning people out foxing people sorry not foxing that's a different character uh, out scheming people rather than doing a good job with <laughs> uh with understanding people at an emotional level i suppose cat knows what she's about is what i'm saying he focuses on stress points not who people are mm-hmm. in keeping with this theme of the initial characteristics that are revealed of Catherine that later in the story don't change but only become inexorable because she has become inexorable. We see very swiftly through the discussion of zoning laws, beautifully, that she has a an enormous and deep-seated disdain for nobility of any stripe. Not just praising nobility, but the Callowin ossified aristocracy. Wasn't that always the way with nobles, though? You got a title and a little land, then all these funny ideas started creeping in. Ideas like having a separate watch just for the white stone. Or the ideas like the white stone only being able to be built out of the sandstone from a particular quarry that, coincidentally and inconveniently, no longer produces, keeping out the rabble. And while personally I find that sort of thing abhorrent, I have to say it's very fun. It's a great little detail to have in there that 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 clever twist of how how this space can be used of zoning laws, if you will, used in such a way to create this division that everybody knows the secret there. But it feels like the kind of thing that allows a lot of hiding that you, you propose that law and it goes through. And then there's just sort of this understood result and nobody can really talk about it because. It's not their fault that the quarries ran dry. That just sort of happens sometimes. Interesting timeline on that, though. It says the Whitestone hadn't expanded in the last few hundred years because of that law which had been passed. And what did you know? That quarry had gone dry over a century back. There seems to have been a little time between the passage of the law and the drying up of the quarry, though the Whitestone itself had not expanded. That's absolutely plausible deniability. and. Very much an HOA-style move. The other reading there is that the quarry went dry a century before the law was written. But that's not how I read it initially. Uh, to be fair, I I came to the same conclusion that you did, that there was a, a gap in timelines there. But reading it, it is possible that the quarry had been dried up for a bit and that there hadn't been any expansion between the quarry drying up and the law just by happenstance, maybe? This is a remarkable example, I think, of EE's really, even this early on, developed ability for environmentally-based storytelling. I don't know if it's entirely environmental storytelling because Catherine does tell us exactly how to feel about it and why she feels that way about it and how it's a bad thing. But all the pieces are there. It's not merely, as Catherine walked along, she thought about how bad the nobility was. They hoarded things and didn't let anyone else into the area. And that was bad. Hopefully Black would stab a governor by the end of this. 
Yeah, I mean, the fact that this is entirely first person, uh, I think, is going to mean that even at the best of the environmental storytelling, it is still filtered through Cat's eyes, which, despite what the multitude of articles online about writing uh, will tell you, I think that's okay. I think you can have the main character saying, here's here's the situation, and here's how I feel about it. That's just how this story is written, and I agree that the environmental storytelling, the storytelling with the environment here is very strong, and I don't think it's lessened by Cat following it up by, you know, by following that up with a characterization of Cat on top of that. I, I think that's very well done. I think it's a, a useful thing. Absolutely. Not to mention that a healthy helping of aristocrophobia improves anything. I can't argue with you there. Before we move on, I just want to note that the Whitestone is all built in pale sandstone. Hashtag pale lights. It's coming out now. It's very good. You should all read it. Once again, I cannot disagree. Wouldn't want to either. Well, she's entering this upper class area where she is not wanted, typically, where she is not welcome, and where... For all I can tell, she has not frequently, if ever, been. Her first response after a little exposition is not, wow, look at this beautiful stuff, or now I'm going to talk about the styles of architecture. Her first response is, are these guards going to give us trouble? She's immediately in threat assessment mode. She's surveying her battlefield, and somehow she is double-checking the work of the greatest monster of the age. She doesn't really know the depths of Black's scheming yet, but she's starting to get a taste of it. And her, not correction, yeah, double-checking of his work is great. His uh, his reaction is <laughs> a, a bit patronizing, perhaps, and she's all embarrassed about it, but I feel as though she shouldn't be. It, that's the kind of thing that is good for her to be thinking about and i think he's probably pleased with it even if he's granting her an amused look to to use the text here but it, it's the it's the kind of thing that uh that will benefit her later on and it really does seem like it's the fact that that's her initial reaction hmm you're telling me this is your plan here's an immediate here's my immediate response not let me think about this plan let me come up with these other things she's in a mindset to scheme a day after meeting the man, and I, I think I can't help but think that Black knows he made a great choice even now, before anything else has happened. To serving as a proving of each other to each other, mm. whether or not it's intended as a test, Black didn't prompt any questions, but she says, are the servants' entrances going to be a problem? You probably didn't think about that. You noble, elbow-rubbing, high-up military, not-of-the-people-anymore monster. And he replies with, and the legionaries should be barring those gates as well, Catherine. Just a, I have this taken care of. It's a demonstration of his suitability as a mentor and of his planning, which is, as we will see continually established, his only character trait. <laughs> and I mean that positively, of course. 
Now, moving just a bit forward, does saying that everything is going as planned just not count if you say it sarcastically? Or is it that once you are as seeped in the meta story as Black is, that you can just know exactly what you can get away with? And it's is is him saying that just flexing in the face of the gods? Or is it, does he know he's just okay if he says it as a joke? He doesn't seem like the type of, I retract that, he is not the kind of man who would play with that kind of fire, but with certainty that it is not playing with fire, but rather poking a smoldering stick into the god's cage so they can snarl at it impotently. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now I have a question. Captain shows up here. Captain is described here relatively thoroughly. An olive-skinned woman who disdained wearing a helmet but wasn't sporting a cloak. It was painfully easy to see exactly how tall and broad she was, definitely over eight feet and with more muscles to her frame than any orc I'd seen, and orcs were built big. Do we know why she's so large? Do we know that's part of the curse? Do we assume? Is there something else given at some point? I don't remember her having, God forbid, giant blood in her, which I don't imagine is possible. I think it's a combination of being large, naturally, and being a warrior and all of that. She's a once-in-a-generation size and strength and all of that, which I think is part of why she is the captain. You know, it, to get a name, there has to be something there to work with. You don't, you know, you're not nobody and then you gain a name suddenly and then you're powerful and mighty. There's a, there's something in you first. And I think that's, she has a martial name because she's <laughs> eight feet tall and incredibly strong. I'm sure the curse plays into it. And if I had to guess, gaining her name bulked her out a bit because if she were seven feet tall and as strong as any orc and then became the captain and the captain, the mythos of the captain, the role that she's stepping into is famed for being taller than any orc and broader than a a troll or what have you, you know, any kind of nonsense like that, then she would probably be a bit bigger. I mean, it's when people are named they physically resemble the how they see themselves in that role i suppose is is the feel i've gotten and so you know she maybe thought of herself as being big and now she's definitely big it's probably a combination of those things but eight feet is pretty tall if only cat could ever learn the lesson of seeing yourself as big Oh no, Captain's three times the height of Catherine, isn't she? Yes, Cat is famously about two and a half feet tall. Yeah. I mean, just looking at that next paragraph, sort of what I'm talking about here, she looks like an overgrown caricature. That feels like a name sort of weighing in on Captain's appearance, if you ask me. Roles are caricatures. Roles are caricatures. Those who caricature themselves into them more well fit them. It's a self-reinforcing system. You can't break the mold. The ruts have been worn in creation and nothing will ever shift them. That's very true. And we will not change our minds on that at all as we read the rest of this story. I've not been wrong before. I will not be again. (laughs) But you know what is wrong? What is wrong? In the very next sentence, we've had Captain appear. She's in, well, she's not introduced herself. And I can't imagine she has ever needed to. But she says, Black, Miss Foundling. And Black's response... Orem has his legionaries in place, is attributed to the knight. I feel like that nickname isn't what we're going for with Black. There are too many knights. 
<laughs> but sure, yeah. Cat just met him. He's a strange adult. She thinks of him as Mr. Knight still. He, they're not on a first name basis yet. You're very right. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Black, quotations, Amadeus, Knight? Yes. Quotations, Amadeus, and you have to earn the right to use that name. Black, quotations, Amadeus, quotations, Maddie, and quotations, Knight. <laughs> quotations, Daddy. Perfect. I think I think that's about locks him down, yeah. Do you use that phrase deliberately since the next sentence is he was unusually eager to lock down the palace? I use that phrase uh, subconsciously deliberately, I suppose, since I also just read that sentence. Not to continue to monopolize the introduction of subject matter, but as Catherine analyzes what valuable, though little, information she's already received from the check-in, she observes. She has hope that all this cloak and dagger means it really is serious, and she wonders whether Mazes is getting his governorship revoked. And she says, that would be pretty ideal as far as I was concerned. Lore would go back under martial law until the next crazy bookend from the wasteland arrived, and with a little luck, the next idiot up in the palace would be more competent than this one. The situation in Lore is so bad at this point or it's so bad and Black's command over and leash on the legions is so strong that martial law is seen as an unquestionable improvement over bad government. And even though we know Black has a very powerful propaganda and a very powerfully presented and tamed face of the legions, not only is it in the nature of martial law, but in the nature of something called the legions of terror, that things have to be markedly awful for that to be a step up. This isn't just, oh, tax law is unreasonable here. More than even the refugees discussed in Chapter One Knife, this feels like the real driving home of that nail in the coffin of this cannot be sustained. Not when the poor long for martial law. I do wonder how much of what you're describing here is intentional on militia's part. If you send governors who are Mazus levels of problematic, to choose a, a fun word for him, such that the rule of black directly or the legions directly is an improvement met with resigned acceptance or even resigned almost appreciation and then the next governor has a time period of well it can't be as bad as the last one basically if there's a, a planned replacement strategy here in these early years of ensuring recency bias always making the legions seem better than any other option uh, until they hit upon a ruler that works. I don't know. It. I wouldn't put it past militia to have a plan that's that complicated and that brutal for the people that it's affecting. But there, just the level of awful that Mazus is made out to be does feel like a step above even that. Like he, maybe it is just as simple as he's awful and as a parrot, I suppose, to keep his father in line, he's given the governorship and you move down that path knowing that he will be bad enough that he can be removed legally. I can see that being the actual play. There you've hit upon it. You invoke Malicious Name, and you found one layer of plan and began to say, well, that's not quite sufficient. Of course not. 
<laughs> it's the layers. He makes allegiance look good. He makes his father initially fall into line because, you know, he's been bought. The high seat has been given a little bit of something. And then he becomes an excuse to remove his father because, of course, they mess up. And you know what? The entire palace was stocked with eyes of the empire from day one. This is just the first few layers of the onion skin. We haven't gotten to the fruit yet. I suppose the bulb is not technically a fruit. Right, I was wondering what the onion fruit was. Probably a pricey innovation. It's nasty over there. Actually, they sound like they do have good food when they're not eating people. They being the nobles, of course. Yeah, but don't they have like biryani and stuff? I think they just know how to... They they have a bunch of their reputation staked on being rich and powerful, so of course they have the best food. They know the best poison pairings. Exactly. You need a variety of good foods available to pair with your good poisons. The first of which we hear about in this chapter. Not the pairings, but poisons. Sure. The the what follows is is a couple lines back and forth between the three of them. Cat throwing what she's worried is a big insult at Black, and of course none of them care. Followed by Cat being weirded out, being concerned by being uncomfortable with how much banter there is between <laughs> Captain and and again here listed as the knight it's once you've read practical practical guide it is hard to imagine any characters in practical guide not just assuming banter between people be as being the default method of communication but even a character like cordelia hassenbach right you will assume banter just layered Mm-hmm. But cloaked, yes. It will be there. And it's made worse. This this whole internal thought process by Kat is made worse when she thinks that banter is banter and wittiness are, are for heroes and that villains just get monologues. Which is another moment of establishing her ignorance because, okay, mm-hmm. villains do get monologues. Yeah. yeah. But that's not a good thing. Well, that's not an... To quote the Care Bears animated series, that's not a bad thing because good is bad for us. Monologues create a certain flow in the way that the battle or conversation is going. And the top tier villains, Black, Cat, etc., can utilize that on occasion for their benefit. The bottom tier villains fall into that trap and are punished for it. But heroes being witty, they, the heroes we meet in this story are the boring people. They're the the mirror knight who literally the only purpose for his head is to knock things down. Or the saint of swords who just is an angry ball of cutting. Mirror knight also manages to knock down about half of the Prosperin noble alliances in the middle of the end of the world. But yes. <laughs> and Tariq doesn't do banter. He just apologizes for how terrible you are as he genocides mm-hmm. a field of babies. That is Tariq. That is a canon moment. Uh, we will be getting there. <laughs> no spoilers. Speaking of spoilers, though, I do want to note this is the first time we see Wakesa's name in the story. I've gone through and control left everything through this point. We have no indication who they're talking about. Hmm. And that's totally fine and cool. I don't think that gave anyone pause because people talk about people they know, even when other people don't know the people they know. But now we've got a little bit more insight. Ho ho! Captain accuses Black of always looking like he's up to something sinister. And the knight replies that Wakase has been a bad influence on you. And you think you were so respectful when we first met. We have insight now into a relationship we barely get to see on screen. Apparently, the warlock is just a little nasty boy to the leader of the bunch. As he should be. 
I do. I mean, at the end of the day, though, is he or is Black basically just cat and takes anything as being treason, more or less? It's. It seems like Warlock maybe is just sort of rolling around being, you know, a pretty good-natured fella, but he makes one joke and Black thinks it's treachery or betrayal because i can see that being black i can see cat having got that from him you can correct your upbringing but you can't escape your genes <laughs> that said of course to think you were so respectful when we first met i would believe that i i feel as though it would be tough to gain the name captain without respecting those above you in a hierarchy whoever that may be rank did black hold before he and Captain and uh, Allie and the lot actually overthrew everything. He was rankless. He was rebel, was he not? He was a squire. He was a deserter. Wasn't he a squire? And that's rank enough. He was a deserter. So, yes. As we will see discussed in the next chapter, names supersede ranks. In the Dread Empire, at least. Beloved Arthur and the fact that he's still bound to the hierarchy of the Order of the Broken Bells. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Heroism is the wrong way to go about it. There are a few other times where n- names don't perfectly line up with how the hierarchies work, the mundane hierarchies, but uh, it's never really as explicit as uh, as Arthur and maybe the hierarch. The hierarch is bound by hierarchy? Strangely. No, the hierarch levels hierarchy. <laughs> he really does try. <laughs> I love him. And... Let's hurry through this so we can get to him. Gotcha. <laughs> she is deeply disquieted by their banter. Mm-hmm. She is thrown off her balance. And yet, Captain denigrates the governor of Lore. And immediately, Catherine says, I think you might be my favorite villain. She's very easily bought. That's definitely a power move when she has met now three villains total, and one of the other ones is standing right there next to her. Two chapters ago, her favorite villain was Ranger. She's really getting better at this. That's true. (laughs) So I think that this means that Captain, her favorite villain, is actually the first calamity, or secret calamity in the case of Eudokia, whom Catherine meets, who is not killed by Catherine or her or her immediate underlings. I mean, yes. Or yeah, a cat or her or by her orders basically. Most, but a good percentage of the a good percentage of the calamities do go out that way, don't they? Now that you mention it. 3 of the 5 black haisu and Eudokia, whereas the warlock is basically entirely unrelated to cat and as far as anything can be. Well, sure. And captain just steps off into a demiplane and probably has a nice vacation home there and is happy forever. Yeah. And that's that's only related to that that one's more related to Cat than the Warlock's death, but not directly related. That's just heroes stepping up thanks to more heroes being called up as there are more powerful villains, basically. But yeah. That really does save Kala with her bare hands. I mean a a sixty percent kill rate on the calamities is pretty good. Sixty percent rate on Kalo too, but well, <laughs> but the Principate got an 80% death rate. So you know what? Yeah. Cat yeah. wins. That's a Callowin style victory. 
It really is, huh? I said it in a previous episode, more or less offhand, but I think Catherine, though it is not her name at any point, she is the spirit of Callow. In every way, shape, and or form, Catherine is Callow incarnate. She's just a nasty little thing. (laughs) To be fair, since in this story, more so than in many, you can do things this way, I really think that the inverse is true, that Callow is the society of cat of cat's character it it works both ways and it explicitly works both ways later on as cat becomes queen but yeah just a nasty little thing i love this book shall we go further (laughs) we should we've got a a a little moment of cat being horrified by the idea of black murdering a bunch of nobles let's see how long into the chapter that lasts (laughs) exactly it's it's fun that she's worried about murder and murder of nobles at this point. It, it's it's great to see where she is, that she's still, you know, a normal person. Normal people are concerned about a bunch of people dying, even if they don't like them. You know, that's a normal human thing to be worried about. And Kat's, a, you know, Kat's got some things going on and is a special person, but she's still a normal human at this point where the idea of... Um, Kill a, killing a few of them, not even all of them, just a few of them. And for the crime of being drunk, basically, well, there's more to it than that. But the immediate crime of being drunk is good for you, Kat. The soldier for sobriety through and through. <laughs> you know how last week we were talking about Catherine's use of wine, judgment of wine, and the beginnings of the addiction narrative that she really falls into? Well, we've got any comment about that, so I think it's time for some Deicide and Applied Blasphemy. Deicide and Applied Blasphemy is our segment where we discuss comments and questions from you, our dear listeners. We have falsely assumed the thrones of your gods, and we invite you in this segment to challenge us for the mantles. You will not succeed, and we will continue on unceasing and unerring. Today's comment comes from a listener who asked us to pronounce their name with the silliest pronunciation possible. My attempt at this will be Akdi, due to the silliness of overemphasized Frenchishness. Whereas I will be sticking with a very simple, understated Erdai. Noble interpretation. Thank you. Akdi writes to us, and in a slightly censored version of Akdi's original email, in order to evade the censorship that an explicit tag might put on this podcast, he writes, I always thought that the drinking was a symptom of Cat being frozen on the worst day of her life. Depressed, unable to cope because she can't really change. Well, not quickly anyway. Thinking, heck, I need a drink right now, and heck, I need to feel human right now. Which she mentioned she could only do when drunk. Less addiction and more mentally altered into a state where she really needs a drink at all times. Once that's gone and she's first under the night, she still drinks, but fairly casually. Much less of the hard stuff, and in a medieval, the water might not be clean, so let's go with wine way. Well, thank you, Arti. What do you think about this? I think it's definitely interesting. I think the line between an addiction and a mentally altered state wherein you are reliant upon a substance might be a bit blurry, but Kat's reliance on 
drugs of a couple different varieties definitely does feel like an anchoring thing a grounding thing a humanizing thing for her once it becomes necessary for whatever reason so i can see this being a valuable nuance i would agree that it's a valuable nuance and it really is one which i had forgotten about or at the very least failed to consider when discussing this we'll have to pay attention of course as we always say to how this develops and how dramatically she shifts upon her transcendence of mortal bonds. But I do think it's valuable to note that she constantly has a reliance, if not dependence, on whichever substances are at hand, be it her veil wine or her wake leaf. Yeah, I think we'll just have to pay attention, look for the language that surrounds Kat's habit, look at that more closely as we move on, especially, like you said, after she goes through various transitions. Either way, we really appreciate you writing in, Erdi. And we look forward to hearing from anyone else who has valuable insights to offer or questions to ask. As always, you can find us on any site and on gmail.com at The Long Price. This has been Deicide and Applied Blasphemy. We stand unvanquished. We see the blackguards here. They're, you know, accompanying black. They're literally the black guards. And Catherine notes, it was a little eerie how silent they were actually. I couldn't recall a single one of them saying anything or seeing one of their faces under the helmets. Is that ever investigated? It's, I don't know that it's investigated, but that mystique does wear off a bit once she's officially squire. There's things that happen, I believe. There's some discussions between Kat and some of the soldiers later on, if I recall correctly. I don't know. I think that's probably just part of working for Black, and it's it's helping to add to his aura of power to have the silent guards nearby, and there's not necessarily more to it than that. It's just, if you're accompanying me, you you're silent around anybody who's not a member of the Calamities, basically. With a little bit of the resources of the Empress herself, because who's really in charge here? So that they have all they need to have the pristine armor, I'm sure, and the extra training for the way they move about, and probably training in silent means of communication. They could be brain-linked, for all we know. Right. Everything they need for the mundane advantage. And yes, in praise, brain linking is mundane advantage. This is the place of the soul box. It's it's very likely that they're that yes, that they have all those advantages. And on top of that, typically speaking, they're not going to be they only need a certain level of training. I, I black probably isn't training them to be able to beat the white knight or what have you, the the high end heroes. They're to fend off the levy and maybe slow down some low low tier heroes until black can deal with them so they can have this aura of power that's mostly accompanied by them being you know quiet and powerful but a lot of their power comes from they probably tend to do most of their fighting alongside a name built around scheming and leadership in a way that empowers those around him i mean he he has a i think it's an aspect or maybe just a a part of his power that lets him make all of his soldiers just better (laughs) i think that's conquer yeah that would make sense that he and he flexes that a little bit to do a couple different things with them but i also want to note that their presence is another one of our windows into those concessions into or not even a concession into practicality but rather a buttress against 
foolhardiness. Yeah, Black can take anyone in the city in hand-to-hand combat easily, with the exception of Captain, in which case he can do it most of the time with a little effort. But he's going to have a personal guard all around him while he walks past some cushy nobles. Does he need it? Probably not. He's got it. That is true, because if we assume that the average person has about Cat's understanding of name power, and if the nobles have slightly more, even then, Cat, at where she is now, would see Black and think, wow, he's probably a good fighter. But if she sees the Gallo, the, sorry, the, um, com- confusing them with uh, her later guards, uh, the, the Black guards with Black, then she thinks, okay, a pretty good fighter, and also a bunch of other pretty good fighters. And that increases her un- estimation of the power of the entire threat. And that probably is true for most of the people in the city who would see that. So it, it's a it's a it's a bit of theater because they aren't really the threat, but it works. You accuse the Black Knight of theater. <laughs> Captain's objections to bathing in blood are entirely practical, mm-hmm. and I like that about her. That tends to be her issue with most of Tracy problems. It's not wow, how could you? So much as why would you? Which really does make her the heir to Black, because why did the conquest even happen as it did? Black said, hey, human sacrifice to feed our people is getting a bit costly. How about we just get the food? With the, yeah, the practicality of evil here, there's the discussion that follows wherein Kat learns how tied to praise all of the shadow guilds. Is that the term they use? Dark guilds, Dark. sorry. Yes, the dark guilds, how tied those are to Prace and how at first she's surprised, but it makes a level of sense. And I, throughout most of it, there's a, a few things worth discussing in this whole conversation. But I think one of the best moments is when Cat, with a straight face, asks the Black Knight, so Booker pays you off too? And I just love that she thinks that that's a legitimate thing that's happening, that this bookie for this pit fighting this underground pit fighting arena is paying off the black knights people to keep (laughs) him from knowing what's happening that is the peak of nationalist pride i think or optimism maybe that she thinks that there's anything like that capable of slow even slowing down black it's very fun and by black i do mean scribe here of course to her mind it's still all black right and maybe assassin too Nothing to do with Scribe, though. Of course. There's a bit of discussion here about Cat figuring out imperial politics, where the governor's allegiances truly are, where how the Empress fits into this, how Black fits into this. But it moves on to just sort of, first of all, Black saying that you have to, that they can do what they'd like, but they have to have killing public figures vetted first. That there's just, uh, you know, basically an approval process for the Assassin's Guild or what have you reaching out to the government to say, hey, we want to kill this politician. Is that okay? (laughs) The idea being that if they have to be vetted, that means some must be okayed. And so there's just the assumption that you ask the government if you can kill certain people in the government and they decide, yeah, that's fine. And sometimes the government has to send its own people to kill people in the government. Mm hmm. I do enjoy that we see the suppression of the Dark Guild seems to be too much of a task. It can't be done. They will spring up. That's not worth pursuing. And yet, that's exactly what Black chose to do with heroes, which are a natural and inevitable result of 
the situation Kalo finds itself in. But, you know, if you got to choose one of them, take out the heroes, and by keeping tabs on the Dark Guilds, it's actually another hero suppression tactic. He's playing his cards right, but I enjoy that they really can't do the Dark Guilds, just every hero. There's, I mean, there's a couple layers there. First, there's the line where Cat or where Black says you're thinking of terms in terms of legal and illegal, and rather it's good and evil. There's the dark guilds are more innately, and this isn't a a reader's moral judgment, but an in-story meta judgment. The dark guilds are lean towards evil. They they steal, they kill, what have you. So it makes sense that they're more easily controlled than destroyed. There's the idea that the dark guilds aim for stealth and flying under the radar um, in a way that heroes both don't and mostly can't. Um, it's you, you, you can't stop people from stealing things without just, you know, providing for them, which is, let's not get carried away here. But also, Black doesn't destroy heroes in the same way that Cat is thinking he should destroy the Dark Guilds. Cat's, you know, he's, she's envisioning this top-down destroy until there's nothing left, whereas that, you know, Cat's, Black says that doesn't work. But what he does with heroes is he keeps an eye on them. There's some stopping before they arise. But like, as an example, Black for a while thinks that Cat is a potential hero. And they didn't sneak into the orphanage and kill her while she slept. They kept tabs on her. And I think that's similar to working with the Dark Guilds. It's a, it's keeping tabs. It's, it's keeping the things controlled and aimed and working on those stories so that they end up in a way that makes it easier for the Calamities to deal with if they have to at all. So I, I think that the two are actually very similar in Black's mind. It's just one can be much more easily controlled at the end of the process. The Dark Guilds can be more easily controlled because they're in the immediate term weaker than an individual hero, even if in the long term they have more effect on various things. What a practical approach to evil. <laughs> Perfect. I suspect you didn't take notes on this because it is a minor thing. And if you did, congratulations. I did as well. As they entered the royal palace, built in dark gray granite instead of the sandstone that infested the rest of this part of the city, Catherine analyzes what's going on. She looks at the riches around them. And then she says she spent most of my time eyeing the painting and sculptures that covered every open space noting that more than a few of them were in the free city style. Painted marble, usually of naked people in twisted-up poses. The free city's art style, we learn here, before we learn really anything about the free cities, is pretty classical Western antiquity. It's Greco-Roman. And that fits when they're also named Greco-Roman stuff. They're they're pretty explicitly Greek city-state modeled, yes. They're, you've got the Greek are you have the yeah very commonly greek names the fact that there are a number of city states that have shifting alliances and are usually at war with each other in some way there's there's a greek influence there tyrant is very clearly modeled off of diogenes i was wondering when we were going to mention diogenes in this podcast i knew it had to come eventually there's another small thing i think just worth pointing out even if it doesn't lead into a full breakdown but hat explicitly foreshadows plans her eventual rise to power uh when she says what's the point of having all that power if you don't use it to fix the parts of the world that need fixing it's it doesn't take long for her to 
I mean, we see it next chapter or the chapter after where she she adjusts her plans from gain a little bit of military power so I can maybe influence things to a name lets me have enough power to really fix things. And then as we go down the line in the story, it shifts to her constantly bargaining for more power over Callow, ostensibly to fix things, but also for it's always to fix things. Sometimes it's just in a longer, sometimes there's a, a long price associated. And it's just, it's fun to see here in chapter three, Kat starting to, start her her ideas on what you should use power for are starting to coalesce. And yet when she gets that power, she immediately begins to see, oh, everything's a hassle. She'll deal with the dark guilds, but first... There's a crusade somehow, immediately. Not while the Dread Empress was here, but apparently I get a crusade and they sent the saint. Cat deserves a crusade, let's be honest. Cat deserves more crusades than she got, yes. <laughs> Pretty soon. So there's the entrance into the Grand Hall, there's yada yada, the nobles are rich and Cat hates them. Mostly over the age of 40. Mm-hmm. Why are they all old? Like Viv would be an appropriate age or appropriate rank to be there potentially. Nobles are fewer and far between now. Why are they all old? Not even the governor's that old. Hmm. The conquest was 20 years ago, which would mean that... They were perfect fighting age and did not participate? Yep. Right. I was I was trying to see if, if it had been more recent, you could say, the youth are militarying. It could just be that this particular meeting or party or what have you, the party, is heads of households and so only the patriarchs and matriarchs are here mostly patriarchs i get the feeling Callow's a bit more sexist than other places given cat pretty soon after they enter says something about i'm a what a girl as though that's an issue in her speaking up to the governor i will give an alternate interpretation there sure when we get there yeah the the age thing i'm not sure it's something to keep an eye out for, I think. I didn't find mm-hmm. an answer in this or the following two chapters, which is as far mm-hmm. as I've read by today, November the 4th. Uh, as, as they entered, we've got Black speaking again, name speaking. And I think it's interesting that uh, it doesn't take long. I think next time, if I recall correctly, and this has been a bit, the next time Black speaks, the next time a named person speaks in in the text is when Black speaks at Catherine. And at that point, and going forward, anytime anytime a named speaks, the text is bold. And at this point, Kat doesn't know what it is, and it's also not aimed at her, which may play into it. But it's just normal text, and they all obey instantly. And I, I think it's interesting that it you know it may have been just a stylistic choice decided on by EE a little later on. Or it very well could be that because we're getting this from Kat's perspective, and this isn't speaking to her, she just sees him say something and they obey, and then she retroactively realizes what's going on. So she and she also doesn't quite have the same sense for power that she does later in the story, which may play into it as well. But I, I just the that level of the formatting of the text maybe telling us a little bit about how Kat is interacting with named lore is was pretty interesting to me. I'm really grateful you found that explanation. I was quite frustrated with that because it doesn't look like he's speaking. Mm-hmm. They act like he's speaking. And then she says, I could feel the same strange weight I'd felt. What What's going on? You, you've got it. It's canon and you win. It's a, but on a first read through, you're not certain he's doing anything. There's a weight, but on the other hand, 
he's the Black Knight. Like, you know, there's a weight to any monster giving a command Absolutely. with a sword in hand. But I also enjoy, we must remember, he is but a little guy. And as Captain who burst open the doors in her eight-foot-tall glory, Black is canonically half her height. Every eye in the room is focused on Black. It's his four-word command, or really one-word command and three-word clarification, out, all of you. He is commanding this, standing up there, a short king. It's beautiful. The fact that before he speaks, Cat is a little irritated to be not the focus of the attention of the nobles. What was she expecting? That's such a weird stance to take. That's such a weird issue to be taking with what's happening in this room. I would have been surprised if any of them glanced at me with Captain towering over them all and Black right there. doesn't matter what kind of celebrity someone has. If you enter a room with someone people know or know of and you are not known, they won't pay attention to you. If I were in a room and a head of state walked in with someone else, I'd say, oh, wow, Olaf Scholz is here. If I were in a room and a film star walked in, I would say, oh, wow, the Detective Pikachu guy is here. If I was in a room and a criminal walked in and somebody I never heard of, I would say, oh, wow, Elon Musk is here. I wouldn't notice a second person. Catherine, you're nobody. You don't even have a name for a chapter and you don't have a full name for half a book. It's not just a person either. (laughs) There are two people who are worldwide famous in this room. And then her. (laughs) Oh, cat. This is Alexander walking in with whoever his boy toy of the week was. And meanwhile, (laughs) what's the Greek name? Diogenes. What's the Greek name from a non-famous person? I don't have just a list of Greek names in front of me. Meanwhile, some armor polish girl Alexander had been working with beforehand, Chloe, is there. Nobody will record that Chloe was there. No one will notice Chloe. Until Chloe personally slays... Give me a contemporary ruler. Uh, Darius? Until Chloe personally slays Darius. It's not going to happen. Or until she, for example, threatens to strangle Darius with his own intestines. Just as a hypothetical. Chloe is my favorite ancient Greek. (laughs) Chloe the armor polished maiden. Mm-hmm. There's our Patreon subscriber goal. goal. We'll do a, what, 2,000-word faux epic poem in classical Greek style forced into English of Chloe the Armor Polished Girl. Perfect. A minor thing here. Later on, Kat uses the phrase gemstones to piglets, but later it transitions almost exclusively, if I recall correctly, into rubies to piglets. And here she starts off with diamonds. I wonder, it's it's odd that she likes that phrase so much, first of all. It's a very, it feels like a very Callowan thing to just be very concerned about betting gemstones to a practical thing like a farm animal. But the it, it's fun to see when that there are pieces of her vocabulary that stick around from literally the very beginning of the story to pretty much the end. And the, the, the phrase sticks, but maybe the specific wording doesn't, which definitely has nothing to do with the fact that the story was written over six years. But it, it's, it's a fun thing to, to notice Kat's language. Well, Callow is a rural backwater and they have a drawl. I come from America and... <laughs> Here, the South is renowned for having a drawl and having weird sayings, mm-hmm. and I mean that positively. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's stereotyped as having creative sayings, sayings where things get recombined. It's slower than molasses. Okay, it's slower than molasses in winter. It's slower than it keeps 
getting added to it gets changed. That's just what she's doing here. They just have a rich, a richly flexible tradition of proverbs. I completely agree. I will say, however, you've got the basis for that saying wrong. It's not slower than molasses. It's slower in speaking as somebody from the South. We won the war. <laughs> Very fair point. Let's see here. So after entry, Mezos just decides to really start things off on maybe the worst foot by calling the Black Knight by his first name. Even though we as a first time reader would not know that that is something that he's prickly about. You know, there are very few people who get to call me by that name. It's presumptuous. It's a level of familiarity that I don't know that I would toss out when the Black Knight and the captain barge into a party and order everybody else out. Mesus really thinks he's got some level of control. He thinks he's flexing some level of power. He, he, there's some some kind of weird power dynamic he thinks he's improving by saying that. Our beloved author really wants us to understand just how bad Mazus as is at everything. And I really appreciate that. But he is calm about it all. Even when things start to go really sideways, he fails with, I think, true uh, crazy hubris. Amadeus, the governor said, outwardly unaffected. Then there was no high in the flinch that went through him when Black rejects his authority to call him by name. Though the aristocrat's face went blank immediately after. Ah, of course, the governor said. I've had a little too much wine, it seems. Just continuing to barrel towards the grave with only a momentary slip of the mask. He gives a regretful sigh when the charges are read. He lies confidently and readily offers up the Callowins on the altar. He calls Catherine a stray dog off the street because he's got to rub in the dirt. The only times he loses his cool are the flinch, when Catherine speaks back to him and he sputters, and he does pale, but that's not losing his cool, and when he finds out that he can't die the way he wants to. Not even when he finds out he has to die. He sneers through that. Uh, He slowly forced his spine to straighten and his hands to stop shaking, but then, fine, he sneered. I was caught. So be it. Unlike peasants, my breed knows how to go when the game is up. Have the mahogany chest in my rooms fetched. I'll drink the death leaf extract with my wine. Also, who's he ordering? He's telling Black to give an order, which, again, he just does not understand the power dynamics at play in this room, even in that moment. But only the Precy would be able to go through that fool's drama without panic. He, that, yeah, he, there's anger, like you said, whenever Cat speaks, there's a little bit of fear, but even at the last when he's screaming, it feels more like outrage, indignation than panic. It's how dare you do this to me, not I don't want to die or anything like that. He's Pracy Pracy racism weird, I'll give him that. During the accusations and Kat chiming in, I really appreciate that this is obviously prior to Kat's wake leaf. Addiction feels like a strong word for basically a goddess, but yeah, we'll call it. Before her wake leaf appreciation, she's in the middle of trying to intimidate somebody. She's at the height of her power up to this point. She's feeling good. So naturally, she turns to the nearest drug she has available to seem calm and in control. And I, that personality trait of hers never goes away. Right now, it's, well, in the middle of my threat after I've just delivered a fairly clever stab, I, I will... 
take a sip of wine. I'll pour myself a cup and, and drink it. You know, it's very easy to see the direct line to drop her one-liner, wave her hand over the pipe so that it sparks and she can let out a puff of smoke. She has a style, and it seems like it's pretty well intrinsic to who she is and not a learned style. And I really really appreciate that about her. You've mentioned here, and we've mentioned previously, there is an addiction narrative that Catherine goes down. And I think there's no indication at this point that she has any addictions, any addict history. But this is the first time that she has taken wine. I don't know how this is going to develop in the short term in specifics in the coming chapters. I just want to note for us and for our listeners here, Catherine takes some wine for the sake of drama and very casually. Not a problem in itself, but let's watch how this builds together. I know it does take a while for the for her drug use of any variety to become a major thing or you know a major issue. But yeah, I'm I'm curious to see knowing where that's leading. I'm curious definitely to watch that develop in her to see if there's more to it than just as it appears as the as her friends pointed out as the readers can see it's obvious what the what the steps leading up to that are because i'm sure they're there now that we know to pay attention for them and it's knowing to pay attention to things that i think is one of the really exciting parts about this project i understand so much more of the nuances that undergird or stand in opposition to statements and claims. Here, when Black tells the governor the taxes you owe are late, he lets out a regretful sigh and says, As I already informed her most dreadful majesty, the convoy was waylaid by bandits. I don't recall if there's been an uptick in banditry, but it's my understanding that part of the project of the conquest is keeping Callow calm. And that means keeping it relatively safe, relatively ordered. It's banditry, especially of an imperial convoy, but we get to that. It's banditry terribly plausible on Callowin roads? I would imagine it is for non-imperial tax convoys. Uh, it's There was a conquest 20 years ago. There were That means that 20 years ago, there were a lot of orphans. And orphans in cities have access to the organizations like cats the tragically orphaned girls such a good name yes absolutely any rural orphans probably had very few options available to them aside from banditry and while we've had 20 years of legionaries stomping out bandits and eudokia making sure that it's not profitable for them really i i think much like the dark guilds i would be shocked to if if Black turned around and said, oh, but there are no bandits in Callow, that would be absurd. Or even uh, the bandit problem is mostly under control. Saying they won't attack Imperial tax convoys, sure. Like Kat says, they're outlaws, not idiots. But since the only objection is to the practicality of that specific hit and not to the existence of bandits, I, I don't feel like that's something that would be an issue with his excuse. Makes a lot of sense. And since you have successfully parried my thought, may I parry one of your earlier thoughts? Of course. When Mazes blames some of the delay on Callowin obstruction, calling them treasonous, and he and Kat have a little, if I may, catty <laughs> back and forth, uh, he sputters at her actually sniping at him and says, your, Y-O-U apostrophe R-E, and her reply is, Callowin, a girl, nobody important. And you propose this was a moment of gendering 
in a notable way for the relatively, not post-gender, but gender-transcending world of the guide. And it could well be. But on a second read-through, in my first read-through, my immediate thought is, Calwin, okay, she's from a backwater. A girl, okay, she's the lesser sex in this world. Uh, nobody important. She isn't yet. But on this read-through, it's Calwin. Okay, she's from Backwater. Nobody important. Yeah, she isn't yet. A girl. Yeah, she's a child, as opposed to a woman. The sure. age of the girl felt much more relevant, at the very least. Whereas previously, I just read gender. I think I think you're probably right. It's it's a girl. If Catherine, if the protagonist of this story had been, you know, Carl, then and you know, masculine and all that, it would have been masculine presenting. It would have been. Callow and I interpreted a boy, nobody important, and that would have changed literally nothing about the meaning. And I think that's, I think you're right there. And I feel much better about that. So thank you. I appreciate that moving forward, there's uh, accusations of treason. There's a lot of detail here about what it actually, what the actual issue is and the legality of all of this and who gets to punish whom and whatnot that are only pertinent in that they help reveal some of Militia's planning and some of Black's planning and, you know, details about the Precy. I like that there's this back and forth, as I said, and it leads into Amadeus saying that the real issue here is the Empress has little patience for those who cross her, much less those doing it so gauchely. The issue isn't as much, oh, you did a bad thing. It's you did a bad thing in a way that's just not done. It's improper the way you did, handled this. And if that's not aristocracy, if that's not nobility to a T, I don't know what is. Moreover, praisey aristocracy, where it's perfectly fine to poison your political opponents, but not in a gauche way. Right. It's expected that there's an antidote and there's all these different layers to how it's done, but you know, you got to be cool about it. You have an image to uphold. Which is also interesting considering Black doesn't really, we find, he doesn't care so much for the ceremony, but he's willing to attack Mazes where it hurts because that's a failure by his standards, not by Black's. Absolutely. Black, Black has made up his mind how this discussion is going to go. He knows what the end result is. One of the two end results, I think, regardless of what Mazes thinks or does, He's not giving Mazus room to wiggle. He's not changing anybody's mind by saying something like that. It's just, hey, Mazus, you won't appreciate hearing this. Here you go. Which showcases how delusional, if I may, crazy cultural attitudes can be. And then we also see how delusional Mazus himself is. He's been appointed governor in a backwater, the capital of the backwater, but, you know, it's still not a high seat. He's clearly not one of the great players now, even if he has hoped to ascend to be one, as does every crazy noble. It's just a combination of the right murders and marriages. But sitting in the capital of Callow, when asked, how did you think this was going to end? He thinks he was going to become chancellor? Like, sure, introduce the role of chancellor, introduce the whole crazy preoccupation with that. Great. Mazes thinks he was going to be chancellor? How? Definitely a long, a long-term plan. And I have to say, the time to say that was your plan isn't when it's when the rhetorical question, how did you think this was going to go, is asked. Black's not asking that curiously. He's not saying, So, Mazes, what were you what were your plans for the next couple of decades? He was mocking him and and to counteract that, Mazes comes out with this absurd level of overconfidence that 
does nothing except fuel Black's, I don't know, mockery, I suppose, derision. It, it's just, it, it's one of the more, for a character who is very bad at everything that we see him do, it's one of the more tone-deaf things he does. It's one of the least aware things he says to respond with, oh, I thought I would be Chancellor. <laughs> Which explains why he was a member of the family who got shipped out there, because acceptable casualties of the tax stealing plan goes awry. Mm -hmm. Which is a very crazy calculation, so I don't think I'm reading into this. I mean... I say that, I, you know, I've said that that is one of the least aware things. Mesis also, in this conversation, twice directly insults Black, which Black isn't the kind of person to rise to that base, so it's not necessarily an issue. But it seems like that's not the kind of thing you want to do if you hope to live a long time. He both calls Black directly an imbecile, which is about as far from the truth as you can get. And then he refers to him as a filthy upstart, which at this point in Black's career... I understand the history of the Precy families, the, the long lineages and all of that. Black's been the Black Knight for, I think it's been established longer than anyone ever, or one of the longest tenures at least. He's hardly an upstart at this point. He's the wrong race. Yeah, I mean, that's that's why I wasn't commenting on filthy. Of course, there's the level of, there's the racism in there, but it's the real issue is Mazes just doesn't really seem to have a lot of interest in living if he's going to opt for that twice in the course of a single conversation. He also insults Black's reasoning. Uh, we've addressed the start of this line before, but I care little if you pick up stray dogs off the streets, Lord Black, but perhaps you should muzzle this one before she gets her tongue ripped out. Yeah, attack the Empress's right hand's chosen guest. Sure. But I just want to note that that is the third mention of a lingualectomy in this chapter. It's present in the epigraph. It's present possibly in a callback to the epigraph right after the introduction to the blackguards. Uh, there were rumors that all servants and bodyguards to the imperial nobility had their tongues ripped out, but I had a hard time believing that. And now we have a third lingualectomy in the same chapter, and I suspect this rate will not be kept up for the remaining... It doesn't seem likely. That line you mentioned is also interesting because it's used back and forth, but it starts with Mazes, and it, they're mostly referring back to that, um, Black and Cat both are. But it's definitely a choice to use dog as a pejorative in the same room as Saba. Oh, that's racially insensitive. It's not great. Or that's tropically insensitive. I can't tropically. I think that's it, yeah. Therian, he's a Therianthropophobe. He is, I mean, very clearly. But, I mean, that's just that's just Mazes for you, you know? He has the worst character introduced so far. Uh, uh, maybe. He's up there. There's a guard who's in this story, and everything we know about him is that he's a rapist, so... But he has a redeeming trait. He died? Yep. Yep. And Mazes has not had that redemption yet. Yet. Well, we'll see if it happens. He's apparently very important. He knows the Chancellor is something. Two things, one extremely minor and one less so. I have to mention, the word crows appears in this chapter. When the knight asks how a ruler should deal with treason, Catherine replies, I'm told imperial policy about that involves heads and pikes, though that always struck me as a little tacky. It's not like you can tell whose head it was a few weeks in. The crows tend to take care of that. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Am I right? Let us read into it. But far more importantly, in the penultimate paragraph, the last full paragraph, they drag him out of the room. 
I put down my goblet of wine, leaving it half full. I felt a little guilty at the waste, but considering the banquet tables were full of food, I was hardly the worst offender tonight. The two things of note there are her only guilt in this chapter is guilt at wasting half a goblet of wine, even though she was so flustered, so she was so moralistically offended and terrified that these people, Black and Captain, might kill some nobles. But now that the governor is sentenced to death, and I know he's the worst of the lot, and I don't contest it. Her only guilt, though, not even a shadow for anything else, is for wasting a little wine. But also, given what we know of the origins of the conquest, of the food crises of praise, the fact that the banquet tables are full of food that is going to waste home to me the excess that praisy nobility is accustomed to wasted food in a world of plenty you know it's unfortunate but sure but knowing what we now know that food has cost a lot of blood regularly for mazes as people it's symbolic i think it shows a sin laying out even though sure more of it would have been eaten if black hadn't interrupted but it's symbolic more of it would have been eaten but if you have a quote banquet table full of food that's more than even if all of it is eaten that's a type of food waste unless it was distributed to the poor good one speaking of which as a noose is closing around mace's throat Catherine pours herself a drink admits to herself she's enjoying every moment of this and says it was payback for every time we'd had half portions at the orphanage because food prices had hiked up the imperial orphanage that Black saw created in part specifically to prevent heroes, in part through early identification, and in part by preventing starving orphans on the street from taking up a mantle. The Imperial Orphanage had to have half portions? That's absurd to me. The Imperial organization had need. It does make a level of sense, though, that the budget for the Imperial Orphanage probably comes from the Empire, whereas the price hikes were coming almost certainly directly from Mazus, and it's been made clear at this point that there's been some <clears throat> interesting accounting going on. It very well could be that that's what's going on here. It also could just be that when food prices went up, that was an excuse by whoever was handling the money to say, sorry, we can't afford as much because the food is higher. And then there's a pocketing of the difference, even though the budget was adjusted for that. Basically, I'm just assuming there's some corruption going on, and that's what the issue is, really. I know it's an over-rosy view of them, but I really want to absolve imperial administration of corruption, at least so far as it is within Black's plans. How would he allow it? But no, you speak truth. The last thing I have for this chapter is commenting on the last, the very last line of it. Quote, So, I said calmly, now is when you make your pitch, I'm guessing. End quote. Cat is starting to figure out that there's a pacing to the way these things work, that there's a rhythm to these conversations and these storylines, and I think that's great. Um, that it it feels here's a here's a reference. We'll hope this lands. It feels order of the stick like in that she's aware that this is the end of the chapter. In a it, it you know the the way that that's just oh we've reached the end of this conversation. Sure, now's when you make the pitch. But it also is of this story arc within here and so i i appreciate that awareness for her that she she knows where she is but i also like 
and I know this is not unique to this chapter or this section of the work as a whole, but um, for the next bit, we have a each of the chapters ends on a note like that on a really good line that summarizes something that that reveals something in a very interesting way. There's this one, and I think the next two both do that, where there's a line at the end of the chapter that it's just very well done to tie things up, and it, it's a, just a nice little one-liner. And I just I really I really like that. It 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 divides these chapters without having a weird break in the conversation. There's it's not awkward. It's just the perfect cutting point in this conversation to end a chapter on, I suppose. Speaking of elegant and not at all awkward transitions. That is all the time we have for today, folks. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata as we discuss. Exciting employment opportunities. Surprise stabbing. And immediate regret. I'm feeling that right now. <laughs> Bye now. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing erratic erratas, a practical guide to evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was The Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Positive Cartoon Loop by Serge Quadrado. Music for Deicide and Applied Blasphemy is Save As by Toby Lane. Outro music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is Price of Freedom, by the artist formerly known as the Karvalaha, and now publishing as Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of pixabay.com music. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. We are also proud to announce the opening of our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, or even join a PGTE-inspired RPG. We implore you, don't consider joining unless you're already supporting the artists who make all of this possible. Next week, Chapter 4, Name. We'd like to thank all the patrons who made this possible, but the Patreon opens today, so wait until next week. Thanks. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata as we discuss... Swamp Zombies. Swambies? <laughs> we cannot include that. That is both too much and frankly not enough. Mostly the second one. <laughs>